Welcome to the Takeaway Unscripted, a new podcast. Well, I don't know if we're new anymore, but we are still covering the weird, the wild, the interesting, and the hopefully culturally relevant news that makes advertising valuable for everyone. It's episode two, Electric Boogaloo. Welcome to another episode of a podcast the New York Times calls Adequate. And the Washington Post calls potentially worth your time if you have nothing better to do. Personally, I would say those are phenomenal views, wouldn't you? I completely agree. Um, and we'll cite sources on those later. Yeah, later. Much, much later. Um, as always, when we say it's a takeaway unscripted, we really mean it's unscripted. So if you're taking the time to listen, we want to make sure that you're hearing our unfiltered, hopefully fresh thoughts. Terrifying for us. Fun for you. Should we do another quickie fact today or should we get right into the meat of our topics? I think we have learned a couple things um, from the first episode. We got some feedback from our many listeners, and one of them was to uh, just, you know, tighten the unscripted thing a bit and get it a little tighter. So let's get past quirky facts because I also don't have a second. Um, and let's get right into it. First, we're going to start with Oatly. Oatly has launched a brand new very meta media campaign. If anybody isn't aware of this, Oatly has been putting out ads for quite some time that say very matter of factly, this is an ad for Oatly. Uh, But recently they have taken it to a far greater level by actually having the first wildly self-aware marketing strategy that seeks to be the most meta-ist campaign of all time. This is the way the journey has come to life. First, Oatly made a bus stop ad promoting the oat drink. Then they created a boat sign. There was a picture of the bus stop floating down the canal in Amsterdam. Then they did a social media post about the boat sign of the bus stop, which then premiered on a billboard of the social media post of the boat of the bus stop, which led to an organ player posting a video in front of said billboard. Afterwards, Oatly made a mobile truck ad about the organ player's video of said sequential bus stops and boat signs and billboards, etc. And then after that, they made a newspaper ad about the truck. I'm actually having trouble tracing this all the way back up to the front at this point, Chike, but we've been preaching to our clients for quite some time that the key is a integrated media ecosystem. Is this what we had in mind? Uh, integrated is an interesting word here. I think I think the really strong thing about this, and candidly, I lost track five items deep of the meta on the meta, um, is that what's actually interesting is more often than not from an advertising perspective, we tend to forget that other pieces of creative exist. And the really interesting thing about this is like from a campaign ecosystem perspective, this is an interesting way to make sure that every single piece builds on a literal other exact piece of creative. However, it all depends on whether or not you see in the last step, which I think is a toss up in today's world where people don't really like ads. People don't like looking at ads. It's, it's basically banner blindness. But it really does show that like, I don't know, it, they really like they're creative. That's what this this that's what this says to me. We love this creative so much that we're gonna go deep, three layers deep, four layers deep, five layers deep, so that even if you're not the mass public and you don't see it, you know, maybe the thought here actually from an audience perspective is 
The first layer will hit everyone. And every increasing layer deeper will hit those that have the most potential to become fans of Oatly because of the fact that they're building on their own creative and building on their own, their own narrative. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like fandoms around different shows like Marvel. Yes, there's everybody that watches the Marvel movies. Then as you get deeper into Marvel and you keep going through the layers and the levels, you actually create a true fan, uh, an advocate, as we would say. And maybe that's what sort of the hidden behind the scenes is. So I guess it's a long way of saying, yeah, it's integrated, but in a way that actually builds on itself, not just existing with each other. I can see your point. I go back and forth. On the one end, I'm wondering if it's one of the lazier ideas in marketing than we've seen. On the other end, I find it very inspiring because it does seem to follow like the way that memes can kind of devolve into something where the initial version of the meme and whatever is out there today it's really hard to trace it back to what the original concept was, but that's the whole point. Let it com completely become something else. That part I think is really interesting. I also forgot because we put this uh, uh, agenda uh, together about a week ago, I forgot that the last piece of it that I saw on the internet when I was researching this thing was that they did a Zoom call between the agency marketing lead and the client actually talking about the idea itself. So that I think was the final piece was them going through the entire thing in a Zoom meeting as a measurement feedback loop. And that was the wow. final piece of, yeah, exactly. And I think they put that into a marketing agency spy ad week thing. So the, the meta- I, I don't, is, I genuinely don't know if anybody would want to see the Zoom calls that we've been on for <laughs> in actual advertising. It was, it, it was an impressive, at the very least, it's a very impressive display of commitment to an idea. And for that, I give them all the credit in the world. I also went down a very interesting rabbit hole where Oatly's now banned from Sweden. There was a lawsuit. There's just, the more you dig into them, fascinating company, definitely willing to ruffle some feathers. Um, we're going to move on though, because while the meta- well, But uh, before we do, before we oh, do- Oh, you, you've got know, one more thing to say. I, I, I always have one more thing to say. It's part of my, it's, well, it's in my reflection. Don't let me stop you. You actually bring up an interesting thing about the meta and the meme getting lost because it reminds me of how like we've created this actual economy on social where different brands will interact with each other based on a meme going deeper and deeper, but you never know where it started from. Like I think a recent one was like around snack brands uh, uh, commenting on like the red flag meme on Twitter where people will throw up their red flags with a red flag emoji of like things they call out that, you know, is a little bit unsure for them. But to your point, I don't know where that started. Is that is that an, another example of meta and commitment in this weird, like, we've actually created an economy on social where every brand benefits from the other brands interacting from each other. And it's like a, it's like a all tides raise all boats type of mechanism. I have a lot of opinions on this and I worry that it's gonna uh, take us down a tangent that is gonna immediately be counterproductive to what I just promised, which was a briefer episode, but I think you're entirely right. I think the purpose of the social space and like the really interesting thing is the idea of it as a public forum where brands can play with brands and where consumers can play with brands and where consumers can play with each other and having all of that happen in one area that is visible. It's like the kind of the modern public forum, right? Where we can see how brands actually act and behave way more sort of actually in humanizing ways, far more than we ever could in the typical quote unquote, public spaces that marketing used to have access to, which were usually one one way vehicles. It was 
linear national television. It was national radio. It was um, things like print, right? Like these were like public spaces where you get to own all the conversation. You get to be the center stage spotlight. And now we're in this space where you have to kind of find your way in. You have to really take your voice into conversations outside of yourself, outside of the brand, outside of maybe the product you're trying to sell. And that's a 24-7 job. There was this really interesting uh, TikTok, I think that was came out maybe a month ago, where it, it was a, a user simply saying, wouldn't it be hilarious if a bunch of brands started commenting on this TikTok? And all of a sudden, all of these brands were in this public space. And it's everybody from you know, Amazon and Kraft Macaroni and Cheese to Trojan condoms to, you know, liquor brands. And I think historically, like that may be really uncomfortable for certain brands to be like, you know, I don't know, like if if there's a condom brand playing in this space, like maybe it's best if I avoid it. But right. Durex think, and, and Nabisco don't really go together. A hundred percent. But at the same time, like it does create this. um and shout out to, to SAS on our team for being the one to, to kind of spot it. But I found it was really interesting uh, of just sort of the shift of where brands kind of play in public uh, and how that's shifted from maybe like these major stages and national stages into uh, comment sections and social media posts of people that may not even have a following necessarily. And it's kind of that flash in the pan moment where like you either act or you don't. I I could go on for days. I think there's this whole thing around this idea of cultural imprinting where and how you position brands and how the idea of that theory has shifted over. But I will digress, but we should we should talk about this in more detail at a later episode because I'm very passionate about it. Okay. I can feel that passion. That passion is coming through. I'll put a pin on it Thanks. as we go to our next topic. Next up, I think we're going to talk about this really interesting new campaign from Bumble. That's basically Bumble embracing the messiness of dating. Uh, a new Bumble campaign is actually celebrating the process of dating instead of following the industry norm of focusing on happy endings. It reflects people's increasingly exploratory approach to post-pandemic dating, a space in which Bumble's gender safeguards make it especially popular. Now, this one is near and dear to my heart, especially because I'm a, I'm a single man. You know, it is what it is. However, what's really interesting here is this idea of going bucking industry norms and going into the negative space. So what I'd love to hear from you is like, what's your thought on this? How do you feel about sort of the way that they're approaching this from a category perspective? I think it's a fantastic and a fresh take. I think it's really interesting because if you, I mean, Hinge was, um, I think, adored for their approach, right? Which was, you know, the app designed to be deleted. It was such a incredible way of positioning the product of, you know, we, we, we want to have a shelf life for you. We, we want this to be a, um, a relationship that ends between hinge and, and their guests. So to, to sort of see Bumble kind of take it in a different step, um, that I think is completely different from what hinge is doing, but has that same sort of sentiment of, um, you know, normalizing breakups, normalizing the learning that happens through relationships, normalizing, um, you know, being able to kind of move and transition through things. I think it's a really fresh take. I think obviously the the category historically uh, has has overpromised and been all maybe not overpromised, but we know that there is a, a host of um, elements of the digital dating scene that are not exactly as rosy as 
uh, maybe the, the legacy sort of partners in that space had had tried to communicate to us uh, about just how easy it is to to find your special someone. We're, we're clearly learning that it does come with its own challenges. Um, and I think Bumble's take is is really compelling. I think it makes total sense when you think about kind of the cultural conversation about where we're at right now, where we're rethinking everything that we obviously talked last episode about kind of the great resignation and about where people are at and, and really taking a look at, you know, I've grown my my expectations, my goals, my values, um, what I want out of life, who I who I want to accomplish those things with. Um, that's super fluid for a lot of us. And, it's, and I think no easier way to kind of know that than when we go through something like what we went through. Um, and I think it's it's really smart. So I would expect this to do really well. I think that this will be It'll be really interesting to see how the rest of the market reacts if we still kind of see a bunch of the dating brands tout uh, that we've got the special somebody right behind our our, our swipe if you, if you swipe for long enough. Or if you're going to see kind of this idea of actually celebrating the journey instead of the destination become more of an actual trope of, of the category at large. Curious because candidly, the last time I was on dating apps was um, when Tinder was was very hot. Uh, no pun intended. And that was basically the only option. So it's been a bit for me. Um, what do you think? I think, well, I'm not going to talk about my personal life, but what I will say is I think the most genius part of this, this, this positioning, and it's a position we've talked about in other instances, is that it turns online dating from a necessary evil into a necessary good. And I think that is the most essential part of its pivot. Like candidly, even in the days of like earlymatch.com, you know, and other and other dating websites, it's kind of like you went to online dating because you couldn't really meet people in real life and you did it so you could get off of it as fast as possible. That is something that Hinge sort of distilled into its dating app designed to be deleted. What's different about this is that it actually creates more relevance for the new audiences and new generations that are coming up. I think I think now more than ever, the most common you know, the most common relationship type is like childless couple. The most common, most commonly people are actually more single than ever. Uh, people are actually having more dates than ever. Paradoxically, people are actually sort of encouraging to be single in a sense. So you have to sort of take from all of that. Is there actually a desire to find that one true partner among money, younger generations? Or is it a desire to find yourself? Who are you as a person? What do you believe in? What, who are the type of people you want around you? It's around all of this theme of just trying to explore the world versus trying to end up at a destination that the world has already determined for you. And I think that type of approach is why I'm like, I really like the phrase negative space because technically online dating was a negative space and most mm -hmm. apps skirted their way around it by saying like promising happy endings like the match.com this will be like that is essentially what they always did was promise happy endings ignore the jet the destination my question to you actually is how valuable is it for other brands to understand their negative space and how to lean into it Oof, that is so good uh i, I love what you said about kind of turning it from a necessary evil into a necessary good. I think that is such a, a succinct way of actually showcasing the power of what they've created. Um, I think in today's world, you're so right. Every It's really hard to find an industry that doesn't come with a, a host of very transparent sort of negative spaces. 
that consumers are engaging with and aware of, or at least sort of existing in, even if it's not acutely something that they're aware of on a daily basis. And frankly, I think, yeah, the brands that are powerful enough to, to sit inside of that. I mean, there, there is, there is such power in also just kind of positioning, like, like recognizing it and, and, and saying that you're one of the folks that record, like that understands this isn't every time you engage with us or the dating scene as in this particular example, that it's always this, uh, fulfilling experience or that it's always just the joy and the pot, the, the, uh, spontaneity, the anticipation side of it all. Yeah. Like there's, there's a, a host of things that are really unfortunate. You have to, you have to meet strangers who maybe are, are misleading or, or not showing them their full selves. You have flakers, you have ghosters, you have all of these things that are a reality to the situation and the brands that can kind of find a way to actually recognize that as part of the category that you don't have to kind of always like say, Hey, that's it's, it's in our brand or in our product. But you do, I think, have to admit when it's a part of the category that you exist in, because that's what consumers are taking as the baseline of the heuristics that they bring to your brand or any of the brands that are in your competitive set. So I love it. I think negative spaces and especially with, you know, everything we read about Gen Z, like whether you recognize it or not, they do. And they're going to be pretty vocal about it. And, and we've seen sort of um a brazenness to every audience as as they get younger in, in in digital spaces especially and with disruptor categories and disruptor brands um that you're not gonna be able to hide from it so to me i think like it's a huge opportunity for people to lean into it um i i really like i'm just kind of struck by what you said about just turning it into a necessary good i'm also really curious you, you sort of remove the fuel from you know, I think there's, I can't remember which one it is, but this, there's, there's one of the companies that the whole thing is, you know, I'm tired of playing games. It's kind of these, it's not great. It's these vignettes of people saying like, I'm tired of, of the game players. I'm tired of all the stuff. So that's why I go to this space. But if you reposition sort of those experiences through exploration and learning and growth, you take away a lot of power of, the potential relevance of any of those other uh, competitors in that space. So I, I think it was a brilliant move. It'll be really interesting to see sort of how the results of the market reacts to it. You know, you, you do make a good point about like candidly stealing other folks' lunch. And it almost reminds myself of like, how can we, as we work on a variety of brands, candidly, it's sort of like a D to C brand mentality where most D to C brands succeed by solving a problem that no one else is talking about. Hymns.com succeeded by making men's health a more approachable thing to talk about. Manscaped.com succeeded by making men's grooming a more approachable thing to talk about. You know, Warby Parker succeeded by making the, the often uh, the, the often arduous trial of trying to find a glass for yourself that actually works and actually creating a, a, a hyper focus on consumer sensitivity and consumer reality. And in a sense, you could say that like the success of every one of these brands is tied to the idea of not necessarily just embracing positivity, but embracing reality and turning it positive. I think there's like a really nice distinction there, because even like for some of the, the normal tropes or trends that we talk about, for instance, we, t we talk about everybody's going outdoors. The outside is for all. Everybody's going there for the mental health, their self-care, etc. But that everyone is doing a lot of work in that sense. It's not everyone. Often underserved audiences don't have the same ability to escape the outdoors, especially right. in the course of the last two years of the pandemic. 
But if a brand was to lean into that and actually say, we know that this is a negative space. However, what if we actually redefine the outdoors? What if we invested in things like urban hikes? What if we thought about ways of getting more folks outside and redefining outside? That I think is the D to C brand mentality yep. of being so problem focused. Like that is the true way to manifest the idea of, and I'm sorry, Amazon, I'm going to steal this, but the idea of customer obsession in a way that's mm-hmm. actually obsessed with the customer and not just obsessed with what you've thought your brand story is to date. Totally. Well, and I think like it's such a more interesting way of actually you're you've got a sharp edge against the competition when you do that type of stuff without needing to compare yourself directly to them. Like I've always been confused by I think the two industries that do it the most. And it's always really confusing when it happens are the uh, the beer industry and the auto industry because they routinely put their competitors logos or hint at their competitors product in their ads. They make they spend money producing and they spend media money basically co-supporting and <laughs> driving co-awareness for their, their nearest competition. There's a, a school of thought in the like age old positioning thing of like, yeah, if you're on the on the bottom rung of a consideration set and you want to kind of get up to that level, sure, you can do that. I think mm-hmm. it's like the classic like Avis example of like the number two best uh, rental brand mm-hmm. in America. So why choose us? But even that, that, sorry to, to pause there because I, I absolutely love the Avis example. That is still an idea of leading into the negative space. Yes. The, the negative space there is defined as the problem is, is we are number two. Totally. And most brands would be like, actually, we're just as good as number one. We are number one. In fact, if you just gave us a chance, Avis said, no, 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 we're number two. But because we're number two, we know we have to work that much harder to keep your business. And that is what, like, that's such a perfect example. And I'm so happy you brought that up because that is one of the things that, one of the greatest marketing examples that has always inspired me in terms of like turning a negative into a positive. And starting to think about how you apply that to other brands, whether it's whether it's Airbnb, whether it's other brands, you know, in, in marketing, clothing, et cetera. Like that is always going to be a consistent way of, driving the the mythical word that we call differentiation. And I think too, like sometimes it's that easy of just kind of putting the truth forward first and then and then you can communicate sort of the, the what you would have done anyways, which was always probably they were like, hey, let's let's show how, just how hard we're working, just how hard we're trying. But just by putting that simple fact out there and, and kind of communicating that honesty and that and showcasing that we all know what the negative space is. Rental car companies don't have to try that hard for you. You got a place to be. You need a car. So we try harder because we're, we're number two creates that like that grounding of just like, you know, where I'm at, where I'm at when I go through these lines and I'm trying to pick up a, a budget friendly car option. Um, I think it's just a, a really. As we think through these buzzwords of authenticity and, um, you know, honesty and, and all of that, like addressing the negative space, finding some way for your brand to, to recognize the realities of what you're working within. And I think we've talked about it in other ways with some of our own clients of like, usually in, in today's world, that means that you're getting it wrong more than you're getting it right. And that's okay. Like communicate that. No, no brand is, with the exception of Ben and Jerry's, a, a star in multicultural support and, and community engagement, right? So you've made mistakes. You cannot make up for those. You also shouldn't try to hide from them. You should use it as a starting point. Brands have made mistakes in sustainability. You're going to make moves that do not get you to carbon neutral, uh, but it's a starting point. If you if you start with that like kind of statement and get to the same page of we're not doing enough in sustainability yet, but here's what we're doing, 
that is way more easy to kind of react favorably to than we're making a move towards sustainability. Look at all the amazing things we're doing. And then the internet culture does what it does and, and starts poking and finds some holes that all of a sudden, because you weren't honest, looks like you're covering something up. You know, there's, 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 there's two things that come to mind. One is what I hope is a funny metaphor of like, it reminds me of when, you know, a basically random unknown person would go viral on Twitter and like, it's an amazing message they went viral for, but then someone starts digging through their tweets and like three years back, you see, Ooh, Ooh, that's a little suspect. Ooh, that's not great. Like that's the type of thing that brands risk when they're not honest, (laughs) about what happens like great you you brought out a new campaign and it's fantastic but also do you remember what you did three or four years ago ken bone ken bone <laughs> ken bone man. yes yes yeah mm-hmm. yep when I, exactly i think that the second thing is how interesting would it be from a client and an agency perspective to have as a consistent part of every brief like, what's the negative space? I know we, mm. we always talk about it through the sense of like, where's the tension for the audience and things like that. But it might actually be interesting to say like, what's the negative space? What's the, the truth or the problem about the brand or the category that either all of us face or that we face? For Avis, it would have been the negative space here is, look, we're number two. Every customer survey that comes in says that we're number two. So we can't ignore the fact that we are number two. We're just not the one that people think of when they come to uh, car rentals. So like, well, how, what do you think about like the notion of like having the negative space as a constant within client briefs? It's such an easy way to get to the tension. Like, yeah, we talk about like every insight has to have that tension in it. And I think that's, that's obviously true, but also kind of hard to, um, like, so where do you go find that? Like, how, how do you create that? And I think that like as for strategists of any level, like getting to something that feels, um, like it's, it's got that push and pull can be really tricky of like, where does that come from? But just something as simple as, yeah, like what aren't we putting into this brief because we're scared of it or because it's a, it's a little too real to want to touch with marketing or whatever. Like that's a, I think just a really accessible way for you to stumble upon the thing that's probably far more interesting because your, your desire to want to omit that is what your competitors are doing and probably what your competitive agency is doing. And probably, right. Like there is not, a lot of people don't want to talk about that stuff and rightfully so like we're, we're living it. Uh, so to want to talk about it through work is not, is not the easiest thing in the world to do, but um, I love that. You know, I think like, and I'll, I'll end it on this because I know we have to transition to our next Indeed topic, we do. but the, the phrase that comes to mind from this conversation candidly is I think being too positive can blind yourself to the potential of future growth because you're, you are obscuring the places from which growth can truly come from, which is in solving problems for consumers, solving problems for the category, solving problems for brands, solving problems at an industry level. Like I think we, there needs to be a little bit of a one-on-one where we go back to the idea that solving problems is always the way forward. But in order for us to do that, we have to accurately define the problem first by being ruthlessly honest with ourselves and the industries that we work in. Completely agree. Not to go back to the Ben and Jerry's example, but like ice cream brands can get very real. It's okay. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to pretend that you are, um, because you're in a certain category or because you've got a certain brand ethos that you have to run away from these things. And I think especially now, um, brands need to find a way to insert themselves and, and have an opinion and be willing to kind of wrestle with that stuff. 
because um, I think we will get a bunch of credit for it. But speaking, speaking of inserting yourselves, I could not plan that segue better if I tried. We're going to move on to our last topic of the day, which we're calling the squid game of marketing. Now, as I say the word squid game, I'm pretty sure most people that listen to this podcast have actually watched the hit breakaway South Korean series Squid Game on Netflix. For me, the episode that broke me was the Marvel episode. I legitimately cried because a lot happened and I was in my emotions for multiple days afterwards. I don't know about you, Harrison, um, but it, 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 it hit me. Now, the thing about things that get popular is that advertisers always inevitably pick up on ways to build off of it. Now, here's a couple of examples that have happened so far from the renaissance of the Squid Game. One such example is, you know, there is actually a relief agency that has a relief app called Relief uh, that specifically focuses on debt relief. And what they did was in New York and Miami, they actually distributed the sort of iconic three three symbols that are like really iconic of the Squid Game onto cards and slipped them underneath people's doors, distributed them around high traffic areas. You know, because in the in the actual show, that doubles as an invite to the game. But for the relief app called Relief, it actually doubles as an invite for you to find debt relief yourself. Now, on top of this, there was also like a hotel chain that managed to run their own version of the Squid Games. Um, and I believe there's also a YouTuber called uh, Mr. Beast, I believe, um, who actually on YouTube ran a very popular show that basically turned the Squid Games into real life. Of course, without all the murder and mayhem, to which you may ask, well, isn't that just a game show? However, I think all of these things ladder up into a bigger topic that I want to call, for lack of a better word, zeitgeist marketing. Marketing that specifically focuses on the thing that's hot of the moment, whether that be NFTs or Squid Game murder mysteries. And my question to you, Harrison, a, how do you feel about some of the Squid Game examples I just put out? Yeah. And two, how do you feel about zeitgeist marketing? Great term. I'm here for it. Um, they, t- trademark. Trademark yeah, for whoever's exactly. listening. You heard it here first, which actually, like, I can't wait for it to pop up on some uh, Ad Week article or something like that, because we just, I, I would be remiss not to mention that we did post episode one of the podcast where you said that Facebook would rebrand a meta roughly one week before that came true. It's, well, welcome to the Takeaway Unscripted, the number one prophetic podcast in advertising. Come through. Currently batting a thousand percent and uh, <laughs> when Zeitgeist Marketing hits, we'll, 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 be, we'll be a thousand percent still and I'll have nothing to do with it. Um, the examples range from cringy to uh, interesting to, um, like you mentioned, they're just a horse by a different name. Uh, you know, Mr. Beast, I like love him and, and his whole thing, but the idea of basically him being a, a digital, uh, modern sort of content creator, basically falling back into the tropes of historical linear uh, content series to, to you know, inspired by a uh, a Korean TV series is, I, I find, um, beautifully ironic. Um, but what I, what I will say, and I think we kind of touched upon this in the last episode was, I think whether you like these things or not, whether you like the actual tactical executions of it or not, the purpose of doing them 
is to get used to the speed and get used to the learnings that you can incorporate from them. Tactics go right, tactics go wrong, but you will be better for it. And, and again, like to go back to that, um, you know, the, the bad examples, I think there's been, there's been people that over the years have been standoffish about TikTok. Clearly that probably at this point is, is a bet that a lot of people are, are rethinking. Um, I think there's a lot of brands that want to get into the NFT space, but don't really know how. Um, the cryptocurrency space, for any of the brands that got into that, they are better suited to get into the NFT space right now. Um, you look, I'll go all the way back to Vine, even though Vine died. Six second videos are, are pretty important to how we market today. Could have had a host of learnings there. Um, so again, I think like it just goes to show that you may not like these things. You may think they're they're uh, subcultures, you may think they're, they, they don't have the scale, um, especially as major marketers, you know, you got to focus on blocking and tackling. You got to focus on, um, the, the quote unquote, the big stuff, uh, the spots and dots, the stuff that is most scalable, but at the same time, like all of these, you know, things that are, that are talked about as under the radar or, or, uh, tangential or sort of interesting, but I don't know how we would leverage it from a brand you're giving away your chance to be ahead of whatever comes next. And I think Zeitgeist, the point of it is just the speed of the learnings that you can do by by getting things wrong in that space is immensely helpful to just getting it right more often whenever the next thing comes and getting your teams used to working at that kind of speed. So that's my sense of it. I know that we've had some conversations about this off the podcast. Where's your head at? I am split because you've said some good things that legitimizes this but i think that like okay i'm going to take a scientific approach to this conversation i think if i broke down the term that we just made up of zeitgeist marketing it basically breaks down into three categories a cultural relevance b brand flexibility and c building an audience i think zeitgeist marketing is important for those three things where you know you need to be culturally relevant you know you need to showcase how flexible your brand can be, especially if you're trying to build a new vision of your brand. And you know that with these niche, often under-the-radar things, you have an opportunity to reach out to new audiences that may not have ever thought about your product before. I think those are the ways that Zeitgeist Marketing works. However, there is a cautionary tale because I think the problem with Zeitgeist Marketing is often people don't take the time to understand the Zeitgeist. I'll use your example for a second of NFTs. Now, NFTs happened and it was the zeitgeist of the moment. Everybody and their mother made an NFT. Charmin made an NFT. I think I made an NFT uh, at some point. Maybe the money's going to come in someday, but who knows when. But uh, like about a month later, information starts trickling out about how actually NFTs might be bad for the environment because of the way that they're made about the fact that actually they're not as worthwhile to the industry as we think they are. And I think like if we had just taken a second to breathe, maybe we could have found a different way of, at the end of the day, NFTs promised a liberation for artists and creators, a way for them to make money without having to rely on traditional means of making money, a way of supporting the the versus communities. How great would it have been if we had taken the moment to understand that as the heart of why NFTs were great and brands made their own ways of bringing that to life. How great would it have been to actually do a one-of-a-kind partnership with Patreon? How great would it have been to thinking about other ways to support artist-creator communities um, beyond sort of the more buzzy term of NFT? On the flip side, 
the interesting thing you brought up is actually the one Squid Game example that I actually like yep. is the Relief app one. Yep. Because it flips, it, they say they have a fundamental understanding of what the zeitgeist is. The Squid Game is a commentary on capitalistic tendencies and the willingness of those in debt to do whatever they need to to get out of it. However, what if there was a way that you didn't need to abase yourself in order to get out of it? That's where the app comes in. That's where the marketing comes in. You're essentially flipping the marketing on its head from a actually unintentional connection from a negative space into a positive reality. Here, here. That, I think, is the pinnacle of what zeitgeist marketing can be. But too often, because of the speed that's required, brands aren't taking the time to go a little bit deeper into understanding why the zeitgeist came to be. What's at the heart of it? What's the abstract of it? that we can actually bring out. There's a really interesting marketing model that I always talk about when it comes to brands. There's, it's the model of the two types of variations. There are aesthetic variations and material variations. Material variations are things that are core to a brand. It's the product you make. So think Nikes and Jordans. They will always make Jordans. They will always re-release them. Those are their material variations, the products they build their brand on. Aesthetic variations are the ways that it manifests in the world and the ways you bring material variations out into new industries, new possibilities, new ways of thinking. So still using the Nike example, but think Nike in Animal Crossing doing a, a pride parade island. Think sure. Nike building a, a, a land in Roblox to try new yeah. things and try something Nike new. Land. Aesthetic variations can work if you understand the zeitgeist you're going into. Right. I, think, I think that's where my my cautionary tale comes in because i actually think you're right the 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 scientific thought behind want trying new things to build cultural events to build your brand possibility and ultimately build a new audience makes sense but sometimes it actually is a hindrance not a deliverance when i think maybe we're saying the same thing in that um i think what you've done a really good job of pointing out is kind of mentioning that like what you need to do is is understand the space and understand why that space is existing and being sort of accelerated the way it is and see if that's something that you as a brand or you as an individual marketer believe is going to continue. So to, to your exact point, there are a lot of NFTs being produced right now. Many of them will not be worth anything. But the idea about a decentralized economy where we put power in the hands of creators and and strip the sort of uh, the authority from the institutions, from the corporations that have always been the, like, you know, kind of sitting at the top, making the most amount of money and, and most amount of profit in, in our sort of uh, economy, that is the driving force. So like to, to your exact point, like I think a lot of brands heard NFTs were hot, figured we got to go make one maybe not even realizing that the fundamental principle that's underpinning the NFT is actually the removal of brands from this ecosystem. Like that is what is driving sort of the next generation of creators is saying that I don't want to lose, you know, Spotify takes 95 uh, cents of every dollar from artists. And I don't know if that's the exact number. So um, apologies, Spotify, if I'm, if I'm uh, misrepresenting that number, but I know it's a lot. And I know that, that, you know, historically we've moved from this, this area of, Record labels, if we take it in the music space, record labels, you know, have such a power, such an authority and such a profitability over artists. 
to what's happened in the streaming space where it's become more accessible for us as listeners, but it's it's not been more equitable for the creators themselves to this NFT opportunity, which really is about a more equitable balance of how we create and exchange resources and how we keep that money tied to the folks that were actually producing it. So from that perspective, I think that like you should pick your trends based on the power of that as a sort of mindset, as a consumer behavior and the acceleration of whether you think that as a, a state of mind for consumers is going to continue to manifest itself. Um, cryptocurrency was obviously a very early indicator of where NFTs could, could be leading. And frankly, most of the digital behavior on video games and on mobile apps are all NFTs just called by another name, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you buying the the five ninety nine app so that you can get access to so that's an NFT or like a skin on Fortnite, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Your yeah, your avatar gear, all of that stuff is our digital digital assets. So I think um, I think the point is if if you want to get into these spaces and you want to kind of do the the three things that you just mentioned, you want to gain that relevance, you want to acquire um, new audiences, and and do things of 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 the like. You need to know that like you're you're not going to bat a thousand percent. They they aren't trusted tactics. They aren't trusted territories. A lot of the time you will get it wrong, um, but what you can learn from it if you if you believe in sort of the movement of the trend rather than individual tactics and how they're manifesting, um, I think is really lucrative. Let me ask you a question because I I, I think the reality is the zeitgeist market needs here to stay, and I say that because. You know, we actually we also talk it. about, we, we, I say that because we just coined it and we're going to keep yeah. being self-referential <laughs> on our own podcast. Shout out to uh, Meninus uh, coming through every single Shut time up. we talk. Um, but Zeitgeist marketing is here to stay for the simple fact of traditional cultural moments are no longer relevant. I think yeah. that's why. Yeah. I think that's why these moments happen because we are so excited as a culture to still rally around things. I remember what? Before I used to be the the series finale of MASH, the series finale of Dallas, the series finale of the first season of Heroes, because all the other seasons of Heroes were terrible, just a personal gripe aside. Um, But, you know, because honestly, the way that we watch, the way that we consume, the way that we consume culture is so decentralized from tribes to individuals to subcultures to you. Honestly, you could find a place that looks like yourself, is like yourself and sounds like yourself. It's so rare to find these moments, these memes, these trends that actually break across all of these intentional barriers we built for ourselves. So my question to you after that long preamble is, do you, do you have any like initial thoughts on, A, how to make sure a brand understands the zeitgeist, and B, or mechanisms in place you can put in to understand the zeitgeist, and B, how to how to deliver on it in a way that's interesting. And I know that's a very abstract question, so abstract answers are welcome. Indeed, uh, those are what I'm usually best at. Um, I think that's the benefit of, you know, having strategists like yourself uh, on pieces of business, because I think the point is, is that you see an observation, NFTs are hot. What's behind that, right? What is the trend territory that's driving that? Um, so again, to kind of go to the the music example, um, the tension or that that we could have been identifying a long time ago is that unlimited access for listeners uh, has actually been really limiting for creators, um, and and that gets to a larger sense of any individual tactic around the uptick of listener sort of 
consumption behavior. Sure, that's an observation. That's a data point. But like what is driving the tension between that and how could brands step in and make it more equitable? I think all of these things are a lot of the trends that I'm seeing right now are around balance of equity in one form or another, from creators to consumers, uh, from brands to individuals, from uh, the wealthy to the less fortunate. Um, it, it, a, a lot of the trends that I think and, and the observations that we're seeing in pockets of categories and pockets of industries are all related to the bubbling up of this imbalance and consumers being more aware of it. And, and I think finally starting to have some of these tools that actually weren't built by the institutions themselves uh, to start to write them. So I think that that to, to me is where it just takes that second look of have I found the trend or have I found the symptom of, a, a, mm. of, a, of something else behind it? I kind of like that idea of like a symptom thought leadership. So like, you know, maybe, maybe the, uh, much like I talked about negative space being added on as part of briefs. What if as part of like doing like quick thought leadership, you, there's always a need for what's the trend and what's the symptom. So no matter what the trend is, you always have to look for what's behind it. Why did it come up? Why do you think it is? Why do you think it's it's there? For Squid Game, is it that the trend is that it dropped on Netflix and everyone's talking about it? Or is it the trend that like anti-capitalist critiques are actually hitting more people across all ages from a national cinema perspective? And that actually starts to become interesting as a brief. That becomes yes. interesting as thinking about the brands that actually align to it and the way that comes out. And I think that's why the relief app made some initial noise because they aligned to the idea of that sort yes. of anti-capitalist critique without necessarily just relying on iconic imagery from the show. And that right there for any brand in any industry, that right there is half of your negative space. How do you be a profitable company in a capitalistic society that hates what capitalism has done to the society? That's a negative space for almost every industry. Mm -hmm. And the brands that can actually find the balance of recognizing that reality and the, then the reality that consumers have and finding a way to kind of make it worth it, um, you're going to be better, better suited. So there, there's a negative space for anyone listening to bring back, to put into their briefs, to find the negative space. There's an easy one that we can all start with that goes across. Look, look at, look, look at you getting into ethical consumption. I, it's free you, advice, know, you know, you know, just, this is the, these are the lighthearted topics we love to bring to the yeah. takeaway unscripted. That's exactly right. My friend. All right, I think that does it. Because um, I think we're on the verge of me being, being wrong on, on brevity here. So thank you all. That's our show, episode two. Thanks to everyone uh, who gave us some candid and I think generally positive feedback. For well, mostly positive. Episode. There, there, there could have been yeah. more. You know, uh, uh, complimentary criticism is, is always welcome. Uh, I hope you found that this episode uh, took that feedback in, that it was better uh, and, and hopefully slightly briefer. Um, to all of our friends, our coworkers, uh, everyone who kind of acts as a, a constant source of entertainment and inspiration for these conversations, uh, thank you. You make us sound smarter, even if um, you know we're, we're all smoke and mirrors back here. Uh, we appreciate you. Uh, if you do have feedback for more shows, more formats, more thoughts, um, uh, and how to make it even shorter, uh, please, 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 please reach out. Uh, and you can email us at takeaway na. That's takeaway North America at essenceglobal.com. All right. Thanks, y'all.